I'm John, I'm Paul, I'm George, and I play the drums. From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette and Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. Ah, uh, yes. Hello there, everybody. It's me, your Beatle pal, Chachi, and welcome to Get Back to the Beatles on the Boston Podcast Network, pod617.com, or wherever you hear your podcast. That's where you can find us. My name is Chachi LaPrette, host of Breakfast with the Beatles in New England. Heard on three radio stations, Massachusetts, Maine, and New Hampshire. And we are brought to you by Subaru of New England and Direct Tire and Auto Service. And here in our studios in beautiful Westwood, Massachusetts, is my famous co-host, uh, Professor David Gallant, the Beatles professor at Suffolk University in Boston. He's the Beatles instructor who teaches all the freshmen all about the Beatles. How you doing there, Mr. Gallant? How are I'm you doing, today? I'm doing great, Chachi, as we as we are in the home stretch. It's final exam week, and uh, my students will, will hopefully show their best on, on Wednesday evening where they do group presentations, and uh, they, they do half of my job, or, or a quarter of my job, because I love talking about the Beatles so much. We only get through so much material, mm-hmm. and by the end of the class, then they get to do the rest what we haven't gotten. So they'll be talking about Let It Be and... Abbey Road. And- well, that's always fun. I wish I could be there. Usually I tried to be there for this event, but I'll be on WMFO with Studio 2 doing some Beatles stuff on Wednesday night. But here we are today as we get towards the end of the year, and I thought we would have two of my favorite authors authoring two of my favorite books. Uh, so we thought we'd bring them together. They, this book, both of these books should be sold together as a set. You know, because it's interesting. It's uh, our first uh, guest is our dear friend, Dr. Candy Leonard, author of the book Beatleness. I have been uh, championing that book, Beatleness, the book Beatleness, for a long time now. It's it's one of my favorite reads. I take it to the beach every summer, and I always uh, I jump from chapter to chapter now. But I've read it several times. So welcome, Dr. Candy Leonard. How are you today? I'm very happy to be here, Chachi. Thank you once again for your kind words about my book. And um, looking forward to our conversation. Well, we do love having Candy on. She's been on before. And our other author, has. this is her second time on Get Back to the Beatles. I love this book as well. Uh, the author's name is Patty Gallo-Stenman. And the book is Diary of a Beatle Maniac, a Fab Insider's Look. At the beat, I can't even read. At the Beatles era, I need to get better reading glasses. It's a great book. I'll say the name again: Diary of a Beatle Maniac, a Fab Insider's Look at the Beatles Era. We welcome Patty. We welcome Doctor Leonard, and we welcome, of course, David Glant. Look, we have two great authors. These books, uh, like, uh, should be together. Chachi, That's you know it. what? I <clears throat> I always imagine that uh, if not for uh, an accident of birth and geography, that. Patty certainly would have been a fantastic subject for uh, for Dr. Leonard to speak to an interview subject during uh, during Candy's research, and Candy would have asked you know Patty about her you know life uh, as a youngster and hearing the Beatles, and then Patty would have said, "Well, let me tell you a story," and and all of a sudden uh, Candy would have stumbled upon a, a gold mine. So Patty should know. I, no promises. Uh, but certainly, they, these are almost, in some ways, compa- companion volumes, or one I think of as, in some ways, the child of the former one. 
uh, in terms of a deeper dive into what an interview subject would have to say in their their lived life. I'm I'm sure, Patty, after having read Candy's book, you said, "My God, there's a term for everything I did, and it's called beetling, yes. <laughs> and it has a, it's right. a it's a verb. Absolutely, it's a verb and a gerund Absolutely. all at the same time. Yeah, and so." Uh, I'll certainly have to consider maybe uh, adopting it as a, as one of the textbooks in my class. Uh, well, it's an interesting combination that we're talking about here. If you don't know these books, it's the the behavior of the author in Diary of a Beetle Maniac, as revealed in in Patty's teenage journal, is what's kind of revealed and discussed amongst a huge uh, amount of girls and boys in Dr. Leonard's book, Beetleness. So um, it would have been an interesting thing to get Patty and Dr. Leonard together. Yep. Uh, and I think both books are fantastic. And I do recommend these books for Christmas, uh, gifts, or for yourself. Both books, Diary of Beetle Maniac and Beetleness. So I guess we should start with Diary of a Beetle Maniac uh, because Dr. Candy Leonard, I will tell you from... I don't know if you read Patty's book, but she yes, I have. and she is the ultimate Beatle maniac in so much as all of what she did, she was hugely rewarded for all of her Beatle activities back then. And we can get into that momentarily. But she was a <laughs> devoted Beatle fan who started writing in a journal at what age, Patty? How did when did it all begin? I was actually thirteen. I started scribbling down my thoughts in a little black journal in December 1962 when I was 13. And um, early in 1964, uh, my little black book started to incorporate news of the Beatles and Beatlemania. So it actually went, you know, pre-Beatles <laughs> to the Beatles to post-Beatles almost when I was in college. So it, 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 the, the book had a long, a long life. But a lot of it did have scribbles about the Beatles and Beatlemania. Yeah, I mean, your first, um, one of the first uh, writings in your book, or your journal, I should say, August 14th, 1963, you wanted to meet Prince Charles and maybe even become his princess. So you started out with Prince yes. Charles and you moved towards other Englishmen after that, namely the four Beatles. Oh, absolutely. I moved, I moved from Prince Charles to. To Sir Paul, let's put it that way. <laughs> so, <laughs> Doctor Leonard, I, go ahead, Patty. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say the funny part of it is when I would start doing the research, there was a little um, sort of a little leash in this this little journal, and I, I pulled out some some clippings from from a newspaper, and there were pictures of of uh, uh, actually Prince Charles when he was about. 15 years old, and I had kept all those years. <laughs> wow. And then January 1st, 1964, your first entry into your diary is about, uh, you read about the Beatles in the Sunday newspaper magazine. And so was that your yes. first exposure to the Beatles? Well, actually, yes, it was. Um, in um, It was during the Christmas season in 63. Uh, our Sunday newspaper magazine ran a, a black and white photo essay. Uh, of this English group that we had never, you know, seen before, and and hysterical fans, of course. And then right after that, um, it was on January third of '64. Uh, I saw a short clip of the Beatles on the Jack Parr TV show. Mm -hmm. I was old yeah. enough to <laughs> to stay up and watch that at night, you know. <laughs> so, um, and and that was the the second time I actually saw them. And then, of course, our radio stations 
started playing, you know, I want to hold your hand. We, we had two leading radio stations in Philadelphia. WIBG was just all over the place with, with a couple of the Beatles songs. So that's what, what our, my introduction to the Beatles was before Ed Sullivan. Yeah. Now, Dr. Leonard, um, how many of your subjects, when you did your research on your book, actually did what Patty did, write into a journal and keep track of uh, every move by the band? A lot of them? Any of them? Oh, uh, a lot of them. Um, in fact, uh, a neighbor of mine who you know, grew up with the Beatles uh, recently told me she found an old diary. Others, I mean, there are scrapbooks and diaries filled with Beatles all over this country in attics and basements that people, you know, baby boomers are passing along to their kids who don't want them. It would really be wonderful to find a way to capture all of these things because they really do tell a story about what it was like to grow up as, you know, during that period as, as a girl and, and a woman and, and what was on your mind and how they just permeated every aspect of your life. What I found really interesting about Patty's book, too, is that, you know, she, um, there's a, you know, I was seven when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan. Patty was, what, 14? Am I getting yeah. that right? Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so if you think, I mean, this is one of the things that's so amazing about, like, we were seven years apart, you mean, but yes, Everything that she's describing, um, I, I mean, we all experience, but from a different vantage point. So just as, you know, she's looking at, you know, like Patty and, and Jane and, you know, looking at them at their hair and their clothes and all this kind of thing, you know, and she was a teenager. And so it was in some ways more meaningful for her than it might have been for me at, at seven or eight. But yet, they were uh, so much on the uh, in the consciousness, even of, of girls as young as I was, that these young that these Beatle women became role models for us. Mm. So it's really very interesting. So, Candy, mm. I I have to mention that um, <clears throat> one of the the first great access points into your text for my students. Um, because in, in real terms, your your book really kind of starts the, the ground zero U.S. moment of the Beatles' arrival. Um, and so it, it's a great into your text when I show my class the um, behind-the-scenes footage that the Maisels take as the Beatles are performing uh-huh. on Ed Sullivan. And there's that uh, segment, um, you know, in the enhanced uh, DVD called Live from Your Living Room, where they leave the Ed Sullivan Theater and they go down around the corner to uh, an apartment building or a tenement building, and they know everybody's watching this program. They knock on the door and they ask this family if they can come in. And basically the crew is filming this family watching the Beatles. Really, it's sort of the family, but they focus on three girls. And the one who's mm-hmm. closest to the television, you can tell she's of that swooning age, but has to sort of remain proper. You can tell it's a it's maybe these kids are kind of first generation in their family and it's a rather conservative family and this girl is is barely holding it in and she's maybe 15 years old she's got a younger sister probably about 12 
And then what I would call in a family, the baby, who's probably about six or seven. And you can see the camera looks at their faces and how they're reacting and how each level has a different access point to what's going on and what they're using. And not only are they watching the Beatles, but you can tell, and I'm, I'm the baby of my family, so I did this. The youngest kid is watching the older kids, her sisters, for cues, how they're going to react, how the parents react to their reactions, and how they react to the music. And so they're all taking it in like a sponge. And that's sort of where I jump into uh, your text that, you know, there are many ways that that generation uh, really made use of the Beatles from, you know, how they watched them on television, but then what they did, as Patty's saying, in writing, in scrapbooking, and really making meeting from found objects and purchased objects, right? So that's sort of that moment that when we're talking about how even different ages at that point would access it, but then be influenced by each other, family and friends. Right. I mean, you also get a sense of the enormity of, you know, sort of, you know, it's like viral before going viral was a thing because, okay, so I was seven, Patty was 14, but there are also girls who are 15, 15, 17, maybe up even through college age. Who were caught up in this, and then you, you know, add the boys into the and young men into the picture, and you have this entire generation, this huge, huge swath of the population for whom this was just like you know, you know, like kind of changed everything, as as we say. Right. You know, it, it, it became it became an, a very important part of everyday life. The the other factor that is maybe in some ways underreported, though though Patty, you do talk about it a bit in ways that when we had spoken before, I found very interesting. That what we can't necessarily separate the young person's experience of the Beatles from is we can't necessarily ex- uh, separate uh-huh. the parent experience of their kids going uh-huh. through this. And I think that's kind of a little bit of an underreported, like, yes, we're doing a study of first-generation Beatle fans. It is harder now to do oral histories of first-generation Beatle fan parents, <laughs> obviously. Oh, um, yeah. But uh, I, I do think that that's yeah. kind of an interesting area. And if, if either of you want to pick up on that and talk about your parental reactions and, and, and even how this altered the family dynamic, I'd, I'd be fascinated to hear about it. Well, it was very different, of course, from one family to the to the next. Um, I had a girlfriend. It, I, I went to a Catholic girls' high school. Famously, famously, worked, you did famously. Yes, yes, famously. <laughs> and and actually, the some of the parents would not even allow watching the girls watching the Beatles on TV. I mean, they they weren't allowed to buy any Beatles junk, as we call it, or stuff. Uh, then there were other parents, like my parents, who thought. Well, my mom, I, I won a contest once. Uh, I got a $25, uh, uh, I guess it was a, a check from a newspaper, because I, I wrote why I love the Beatles. And I said, you know, our parents like us. My mom likes me, you know, listening to the Beatles music rather than hanging on the corner with the boys. That's you right. Know? I mean, you actually got you got, you got got paid for your fandom in a way, I, right? And I so- got paid 25 It was the first money I ever earned and it was 25 bucks and I won it from the Philadelphia Daily News for why wow. I like the Beatles. And, uh, and the, funny, <laughs> the funny thing is there were other parents who went totally overboard. I, my, I have my friend Pat. Her parents would drive her to concerts, go to concerts with her, uh, helped her with her fan club 100%. They were really involved. They loved the idea of, you know, they were 
sort of Beatlemaniac too. Was it so her mom and her dad or just her mom? No, her mom and her dad. They were both involved. And they, they, they drove her, you know, the concerts and even went to some concerts with her. And um, it, it's amazing. So it sort of, it sort of, you know, ran the whole spectrum. But uh, some parents were very strict and they didn't want their kids to even, you know, buy a record. Well, Patty, so, I, I, I do find it interesting that your parents took the approach of, of well, I mean, not not condemning, being supportive, not necessarily driving yeah. you to concerts and everything, but... Uh, yeah. that it was a, they felt it was a safe space. And, you know, at least it, this is a, just an echo from what my mother used to say, and I'm going to butcher the Italian, but she would say, no fum, which meant do what you want as long as you're not smoking. Because if you were smoking, that meant, that meant, that meant that you were, you know, that, that was just the worst thing that it could ever happen because it was a signifier right. of many other demons and ills, right? Did I get that right, Chachi? Oh, yeah. well, mm-hmm. Smoking cigarettes? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the old joke, my, my, my well, aunt. Yeah. Patty uh, pointed yeah. out in her book how the, the boy, there was a date that you were, that the guy wore a leather jacket, and that was also a signifier of something, right? Oh, oh yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, we, we, there are actually, well, we talked about, um, in my book, I, I talk about Philadelphia and how the teenagers were kind of, it, it didn't have anything to do with the Beatles, but they were like jives and conservatives, and they, they danced in different ways, and they wore different kind of clothes. And of course, the jives were wearing, the boys were wearing black leather jackets and, you know, pointy shoes. And, and uh, the conservatives looked like, you know, the beach boys with their, their <laughs> the magic shirts and things. So there were, and that, that, that was, that was sort of, you know, beyond with the Beatle thing. And of course, with the Beatle thing, I, I thought I wanted to be, you know, a dolly bird and, and wear all the Mary Quant dresses and stuff, right. which you couldn't find in Philadelphia in 1965. <laughs> and, and, I actually, it's a funny thing, I actually went to the, the biggest department store in Philadelphia looking for a pair of white, you know, opaque stockings that, mm-hmm. you know, Patty Boyd wore. And right, things. you had and to have had, those. Uh, you had, well, they didn't have them yet in, in fashion mm-hmm. in Philadelphia, so I had to get nurses' stockings. So, <laughs> <laughs> and the corrective yeah, shoes to go edge. with it. I was really yeah, that was really cutting edge, you know. Candy, but what what did uh, Candy? What did your parents think of of your? I know you were very young when, but when you started to get into them, what what was their approach to it? Well, my parents were pretty into them too, actually. I mean, my mother was a Frank Sinatra fan girl in the day, so she, you know, my my parents were a little offbeat in their own way. You know, they're very into pop culture and and. Uh, you know, they they enjoyed them, too. I think they enjoyed their humor. Um, you know, I think, you know, there were times when I, it got when my brother and I would sort of get a little out of hand and maybe they would, like, enough already. And, of course, my, my grandmother was, like, Beatles, fat. <laughs> Did you say fat? Did you say fat? Fat, <laughs> F-E-A. Yeah. Beatles, This is my, you know, my old grandmother from Eastern Europe. Beatles, fat. So, but, but, but they were big parts, you know, like, they were just, you know, they were everywhere. They were just everywhere. And, and so, yeah, my parents were pretty cool about it. I mean, they, you know, they, they, they liked them. Well, you know, we're talking about... When, when my mother was sick and she was, you know, towards the end of her life, I was cleaning out her apartment and I found she had a few Beatles CDs, which really kind of made me happy. <laughs> 
<laughs> she had purchased herself. Isn't yeah. that nice? Well, you know, the, the other thing you know, from my, from me and my parents, it was, um, you know, I, I couldn't grow my hair, so it was a complete uh, <laughs> clash with my dad. My mother, you know, my mother liked the Beatles actually, but my dad was against them. But we talked about parents, but let's talk about uh, school teachers because I went to Haggerty School in oh. Cambridge and Russell <laughs> School, and all of my teachers encouraged. Uh, me to love the Beatles and the music, but Patty, I know for you, you went to parochial school, and I think oh. you said in your book that the nuns thought they were talentless and they all needed a bath. So I found that to be funny. Yes, yes uh, actually, we had a lot of old uh, nuns, uh, you know, wearing the long habits that look like mid- from the Middle Ages, and uh, they did not like the Beatles. They did not like anything about the Beatles, and they that one sister who was, uh, she was, uh, said that they were dirty, unwashed Englishmen, she called them, <laughs> I remember. And they, and I, I actually had, had posted inside my locker door, not on the outside, a, I made my own ca- Beatle calendar, uh, I guess for, you know, 1965. And I was really proud of this thing because of course you couldn't buy Beatle calendars in those days. And uh, the nun was walking down, you know, the row where our, our, our lockers were, and she ripped it right off of the inside of my drawer. I remember that. I, I also had my Beetle bubblegum cards confiscated in English class Oof. because I was passing them around. I, had, I still have my 108 Beetle bubblegum cards, and uh, she, she grabbed them from me because I was passing them around, and I really thought she was going to throw them in the trash can. I was so upset, but she was, she was very nice. And she said to me after class, I don't ever want to see those things in this classroom. Again. <laughs> so, so Candy, uh, through your research, did any of your subjects bring up, uh, how their teachers reacted to the Beatles? Oh yeah. Well, none, especially, um, that seems good. Um, no, I don't realize was people who had teachers necessarily. Although, I mean, we did, you know, certainly everybody did try to, you know, you, you wanted them with you all the time. So you had a loose notebook or pictures in your, shoved into your book oh. or whatever. But um, I don't remember teachers ever complaining. But in my, but in the research I did for Beatles, there were many people talked about, just sort of like Patty just said, where it's particularly um, in Catholic school where, you know, nuns do not particularly like the Beatles. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, let me ask you. Well, I wonder, like, what do you think there? What, Patty? What do you think their concern or what was? Was it that just they were distracting you in, in in school, or was it that they were going to somehow be a harmful influence? What do you think their concern was? I think it was that they it was a combination of those two things. Plus, they you know they were disciplinarians. They didn't like anything out of the normal. We had we were kept right. very strictly. So uh, you know, just to see girls, you know, wearing beetle buttons mm-hmm. or uh, having beetle posters in their locker or whatever, that was against the, the discipline standards. We should never, you know, do any of that stuff. False idols. Yes, false idols. Well, false idols, and obviously the nuns were. Uh, this is about sex. And there's there there are no uh, there are no better experts on on sensing um, the uh, the evils or the 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 power of of a of a young female sexuality than those who are trying to suppress it. So I think this certainly shakes uh, 
any any mother superior to the to the inner fabric of her habit that's for sure and uh and because well because that's because nice tap, tapping into that power uh that that the young woman doesn't even know how to name it right or 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 what mm-hmm. to do with it right. um becomes uh becomes a a a force of energy that my God, she could do uh, so many things with that desire that have little to do with sex, that have to do with empowerment, and has to do with politics, and wanting a career, and not necessarily wanting a family. All those things can come exactly. from that, and that's what had right. to be. That's what had to be uh, controlled. But I like how Patty said, "Oh, when they were English," which, of course, in a in a Catholic nun's mind, could mean, of course, you know, that they are they are they are you know uh, uh, sinners and schismatics because they would not be of the faith. Little would they know that Paul McCartney's mother was Catholic, but that's you know a detail that they weren't going to stick around to listen to. <laughs> yeah, you, I, actually, you're so right about that because a lot of the very old nuns were actually Irish nuns. Oh, and, boy, even um, worse, right? They didn't think, <laughs> right. They didn't like anything English. So, <laughs> you know, you didn't. so that was part of it, actually. Except so, uh, um, I think all yeah. of the Beatles had Irish heritage at some point. Now, yes. Well, mm-hmm. of course, they didn't know that. They, they would never have known anything about them, not even their names. They just knew that they were, you know, our bad influence on, <laughs> on us young, young, good Catholic girls. Yeah. <laughs> Patty, I have a question for you, if I should, sure. okay, for me to add. Um, yes. So you said that you, you left-handed, as, as I am, and so um, you said So you started playing the guitar, and you strung it the other way, and you took a yes. few lessons, and then came to the conclusion that it wasn't for you. So I'm wondering, yeah. did your teacher um, attempt to teach you left-handed. So, and the other question I want to ask is, did you have intentions of make, of having a band? Well, I, mean, I never had intentions of having a band, but I, I did learn left-handed guitar, and I was so bad at... I, I had tried to play the clarinet years before, and I was a, a bomb at that, too. So I, I just don't have the musical ability, but I, he did teach me left-handed guitar, and I was really at it and I'm you know and I just gave it up uh, that was it but I did have a friend who was one of my I call them beetle buddies now that we right, is she still something. playing well I I don't I don't know what happened to her after 55 years but uh she was playing very very well in high school she was she took lessons with me and she uh Joanne and she had a lot of talent so and she mm-hmm. wasn't left-handed and her favorite beetle was George so, mm-hmm. you know, we all pick, that's another thing. I think as early as the Ed Sullivan show, I recall, we all picked our favorite Beatle that night. Mm-hmm. And each of us right. had a favorite Beatle. And in our little group, it, you know, it was George, John, two Pauls, and one Ringo. You, you, didn't even, <laughs> you didn't even wait until a hard day's night to confirm that choice? Nope. Because oh, usually no, that's no. We, that's we, the arc of when those no. my favorite beetle gets reified. At least historically, uh, they they point to oh, no. it's after we, a hard day's night. It becomes the route the Mount Rushmore gets fixed in stone. Uh, no, we we actually zeroed in that first night. We had we had some magazines, some very early magazines in February. I still have mine. It kind of almost looked like newspaper print magazines, and they had very beautiful you know pictures of each of the guys. And so we could drool over them. And then when we saw them, you know, also on the, on, on TV, then we, I, we, fir- I firmed it up way, like, I think it was February 9th. I, I, I picked my favorite and he's, he's been my favorite for over 55 years. So, 
but, know. But let, um, let me ask you, did when, uh, and Candy, you might answer this as well, maybe from some of your people that you spoke to, when they said, when it came up on the screen that John was married, did that put you off? Say, oh, he's married, I can't touch him, I'm going to Paul. Did that yeah. have any bearing on fandom? No, actually, I knew already, we all knew already that John was married, and he was the married one. And uh, that didn't have anything, you know, with me. I, I just picked Paul because he looks so choir boy like. I just <laughs> liked him from the be- loved him at the beginning. But my, my now my girlfriend Diane, she was a giant in the world John fan, and she didn't care. We actually liked Cynthia. Uh, Cynthia was the one Beatle woman that a lot of very very early uh, first generation fans really liked. Because he was already married. She was very sweet looking. They had a cute little baby. And, right, and she came him, with the story. She was already right. there. So he, he, didn't, he didn't mind her yeah. coming later. <laughs> no, no. She was there. And she was. She had the cutest little, they had the cutest little baby. So we were very supportive of Cynthia. And, and we really liked Cynthia. But we're not going to talk about the other one. <laughs> 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 you know, I, I have a funny story uh, I'll just tell it very briefly in the book about, uh, you know, we weren't Jane Asher fans very, very much in those days. And um, it, it was uh, after summer vacation, my girlfriend made a little clay voodoo doll figure of <laughs> Jane Asher. And we brought it to lunch at the Catholic, you know, school, our lunch table. And we, I think we, we, we had stuck it with either pins or it was paper clips. I can't remember. But we were just going to kill Jane Asher. So uh, that was something we, we were doing. So we were trying to get rid of her. So Paul wouldn't marry her, which was kind of weird when you think we were already like 15 and a half at the time or something. But it was all well, part of the fun. Well, it's how teenagers think, too. It's like this, it's a, it's a powerful fantasy. You know, it's like a, yeah. it's like a, you know, something to hang on to and, and fantasize about and, yeah, from a safe distance, and uh, that's true. Mm-hmm. You know. But it's embarrassing when you tell us when I tell the story. Well, but here's the thing, though. Here's the thing: like you shouldn't be embarrassed because, as you know, from um, you know, from now, you know, having written the book and going out and talking about it, and as I know from my book and my, re- I mean, you're not. Yeah. I mean, this was such a common behavior, so people are embarrassed. Yeah. Like, oh, I was. So, you know, I really believe somehow he was attracted to him and he fell in love. As silly as it sounds, like so many girls, women, young women, um, held that fantasy, you know, oh, so you shouldn't yeah. be embarrassed. Yes, you know. with me, I, I think in our little group, it was the chase. You know, I call it the chase to, to meet them. But once we would have met them, then what? You know, we never had that sort of, you know, plan after like plan b it was just the chase and the chase right. was so exciting for us you know so really. now you were at an age where you were already you know thinking about boys and trying to mm-hmm. date what you wanted to and, and and all that so do you think that they um infected or, or kind of imprinted on you what you wanted a boyfriend to be like actually no i think I think they were so far up in the stratosphere for us that, you know, the neighborhood boys were just sort of, 
you know, lowly creature. It's true, honestly. You know, it's very, the Beatles were just like, oh my goodness, I I could never even think to have a poison. That's the whole thing I needed. Right, all the more reason to hold on to the fantasy. Like, right, absolutely. You you said it. That's true. Well, for for a fan like Patty, the Beatles were in a stratosphere, but she was probably the most diligent of all Beatle fans that I've met over the years. And uh, first thing (laughs) about Patty that we should note is she saw the Beatles perform three times. That's amazing. That is really yeah. So I was very fortunate, but my good friend Pat. And Kusa, she saw them four times. I mean, it's amazing. I had, I was lucky. I, I did see them in Philly twice, and I saw them at Shea in '66 once. And when I think about Shea now, and I think about New York, I mean, here I was, this little girl, you know, taking the Amtrak up with my you know, train with my my friends uh, to see the Beatles at Shea, and then taking the Amtrak back late in the evening. I was like, how did my mother ever let me do that? But it was, everything was so safe then, you know, it was so many, so many lifetimes ago, but it, 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 it was an incredible experience. Each, each of the concerts, the first concert was, as I had told Chachi too, it was very different than the stadium concert. The stadium concerts, at least they, you know, they had blasted the music in the loudspeakers and you could see them. They look like little ants down there on the, you know, the baseball field. But at Convention Hall in 64 uh, in Philadelphia on September 2nd, you couldn't see them. And you really, I was down on the, the floor level, which is flat. It's a convention center. So they, they put up wooden folding chairs, which was a big mistake because these little girls, as I did, stood on top of the folding mm-hmm. chairs, tried to see the Beatles, which we couldn't uh, because of, you know, the way the place was situated. And we fell over on the chairs. And my, my, my girlfriend, Diane, she really split her legs pretty mm-hmm. badly uh, on, you know, falling over. So it was a it was a strange concert, to say the least. <laughs> but you couldn't hear them. You could not hear the music. And it was, uh, and you couldn't see anything. So I took some pictures, but all you can see is black in front of these heads. (laughs) (laughs) And and the other thing, there's many stories in in Patty's book that I know is uh, Dr. Leonard will enjoy. Um, One being that uh, Patty had a Paul McCartney birthday party at her house and they tried to call. Uh, Liverpool, right, Liverpool to reach yeah. Paul mm-hmm. and uh, what happened when you called okay. Liverpool Patty okay well we were in my mother's dining room I would have birthday parties for Paul and John and, and have a little cake my friends were there <laughs> we would uh, I, I called Liverpool because I got the number well not the number but I got the, the address and the number from one of these fan magazines and I was so excited so I called on our house phone which is the only phones we had in those days and the uh, operator, the Liverpool operator, answered in her beautiful accent, and she said, "I'm sorry, love, he's not here. But why don't you try his fan club?" And and actually, that's all we needed, just to hear an, a Liverpool accent. Right. <laughs> we were in heaven. And then, of course, my mother did not know that I called long distance to Liverpool. She would have skewered me if she knew. 
So uh, in those days, it was very expensive. So it was it was a real high for us to even get through to an operator in Liverpool. And we talked about it for a long time. <laughs> wow. Now, now listen to this, Candy. Uh, Patty uh, befriended Victor Spinetti from A Hard Day's Night. Right. And through her friendship, she created the Victor Spinetti Fan Club. And Candy, tell me if any of your your subjects that you spoke to went to these extremes where she became close friends with Victor Spinetti for the rest of his life, and she acquired a laundry list of Beatle collectibles. Patty, run down the list for, for, for Dr. <laughs> okay. Candy Leonard and let her know uh, what you acquired because of your love uh, and diligence to, uh, to be involved with the Beatles in some way. Victor was a very lovely and very generous person. And uh, he, he was filming, uh, at the time he was filming Help with them. And he, he liked having, a, he had several fan clubs, but uh, he, he liked our fan club too. He sent us the uh, menu from the plane, which was called the Beatles Bahamas Special, but the Beatles flew, and he flew, the whole cast flew over to the Bahamas. And on the back of this menu, which was several pages from BOAC Air, Airlines, there were all four autographs. <laughs> two intense. Where is this? Two where is this today? In my safe deposit box in the bank. That's, good, that's a good place for it. <laughs> oh yeah, it's the best place for it. Believe me, I have a, I have a facsimile here in the house, but no, it's in the bank. And yeah, no, I could. In your book, in your, it was interesting. Also, I was looking at the menu to see what that's like. One of the items was turtle soup. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> Isn't that funny? They they really lived nice across the Atlantic back then. That's for sure. But, but he also, my mom wrote to him. because my mom knew him too. She he said she said Pat's having Patty's having a birthday soon. Can you send something special, Victor? Well, Victor sent something very special. He, he was also, he was still filming, so he, he sent me a postcard from the Alps, and on the back it says, Happy Birthday, Love, Paul McCartney, plus the uh, studio hairdresser in, at Twickenham Studio in London cut Paul's hair, and I got a lock of Paul's hair, which I encased in plastic, and I slept with under my pillow for two years. <laughs> wow. Now, what made you take it? Why only two years? Like, at what point did you say, I'm not going to sleep with this under my pillow anymore? You know, probably when I started college, because starting mm-hmm. university was a big step, as it is for everyone. So I think at that time, there was just sort of a change in me. Not that I didn't love them. I loved them dearly. But, you know, it's kind of time to put away my toys a little bit, you know, when I was right. Busy with right. getting used to university. I lived at home during university, but uh, I, it was it was it was a little changing time for me. But um, you know, I I still had my my room for a long time decorated with you know posters and and pictures and things of that sort. Now, what um, else? What else did Victor send you, Patty? The list goes on. Oh yes, the, the list does go on. Uh, along with a lot of his autographed pictures. He did send us uh, from the Bahamas. It was uh, a um, a blue birthday candle from George Harrison's twenty first birthday cake. He sent us a Peter Stuyvesant cigarette butt from John Lennon <laughs> and a cocktail stir 
use by Paul McCartney at the Balmora Club in Nassau and the Bahamas. Patty, you know so what Chachi's were, getting at. Yes, Patty. Now talk yeah, about. That, I want to hear. Yeah, yeah. Right. I want to hear about how that all. Yes. What's the other item, Patty? What? What? I'm. I'm just thinking. What? What other item? From the Please. movie A Hard Day's Night. Oh, this sweater! Oh my goodness! This sweater. I don't have this, don't have this sweater anymore. So I, I've I've forgotten about that momentarily. But actually, the first thing he ever sent us, and it was in a big, you know, package. We didn't know what it was. Was this fuzzy gray and black sweater? And we knew, you know, it was it was the one he wore, the V-neck sweater he wore uh, in a hard day's night. And what we did with that sweater was, uh, we were, you know, sort of hawking our, our fan club. And when help came out, and the lines of the girls went, you know, around the block at the, at the movie theater, we wore the. Uh, my girlfriend wore that sweater uh, in a hundred degree weather. And, uh, yes. <laughs> She did, and we were sell- we were giving out little fuzzy pieces of it uh, on with Scotch tape on a little card that said the official Vicious Benetti Fan Club of America. Please join, and we had our you know address or whatever it was on it. But there was a little piece of fuzz with Scotch tape on there, so that fuzz is all around the world probably. And uh, so, so, what happened to the sweater? <laughs> well, when when the fan club broke up and we got a little older. Uh, my friend uh, Diane, who was co-president with me, she took the sweater, and I I took the autograph. So uh-huh. um, the sweater mm. is actually, I mean, it, it, in the marketplace, I'm sure it would go for a lot of money because it's a it's a relic. Do, do we do we well, know that? And it's also yeah. part. It's I'm so sorry about the sweater. But yeah. it, it's also like it, it was a pivotal. You know, there was so much jokes about the sweater, and she needed oh, yeah. him, and he doesn't have a wife. I mean, it was such an important yes. artifact yes. from that movie. Oh. It, yes. Do, do it, we it, do we know that that was the only one, or did wardrobe have several of those god awful things? <laughs> uh, I mean, if it, if it was the one of a kind. Uh, that's um yes, you know. cynical of you, David, to even think of that. Well, well I mean, I, you know, I mean, I'm sure John Wayne had more than one ten gallon hat in Red River, right? <laughs> but even no, any you're of right, you're right. <laughs> any I, I any of those I would be valuable. I, I kind of remember, and I, I might be in, in Victor's autobiography, but I think it was actually Victor's sweater. I oh, think. it was his own sweater that he wore. So yeah, an old sweater, I think. I'm not sure, but I remember hearing that it was Victor's sweater. But it's funny because it, it was such an ugly, I mean, you know, you think of ugly Christmas sweaters, but <laughs> this, this thing was, oh, and it was so fuzzy. There was, it was just losing fuzz all the time. And we, but it was wrong. very fashionable at that moment, wasn't it? The yeah, yeah. mohair sweater. I mean, mohair sweater, mohair suit, yeah. mohair sweater. Yeah. It looked very it itchy. Itchy and long on a scroll, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you know, know I, I guess uh, where, where it yeah. has it, uh, you know, Richard Lester, it's always been talked about, you know, why the artistic choice to film in black and white and is the influence of the French Nouvelle Vague cinema on him. But in reality, I think he said somewhere he never could imagine filming that god-awful sweater in color. So it had to be in black and white. Really? <laughs> just think, oh, you just make it up. Well, I mean, you know, who's, who's to say that I'm wrong? For That's instance, right. for instance, Patty amongst you know, her friends, after the film came out and everything, and if... Did you actually had to, you had to convince people without any letter, maybe you had a letter of authenticity. No, no, guys, really, this is the sweater he wore. 
No, no, I didn't have a letter of anything back then in 1965. <laughs> but, you know, the funny thing when you, you mentioned <laughs> Richard Lester. Um, Native of Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Yeah. He's from, well, not only that, our, us girls, after the movie came out, we found out he was from Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Uh, our little uh, group of girls sat down and we called every Lester family in the yellow and the Philadelphia <laughs> film book. I remember mm-hmm. that. We were looking for relatives of his. Hey, Lisa we, wasn't we a long-distance call this time. <laughs> no, no. It was right around mm-hmm. the corner. and We had the white pages and all the Lester. I remember <laughs> that, yeah. <laughs> you know, what's, what's so interesting is how, you know, like all these, like, you know, you think about that now, how how foolish in a way it was to think that you'd find them. But, but just like we all do stuff like that and looking in phone books for different names and things. And it's, uh, but it, it's, it's very interesting how, again, people of all ages, like even like you were doing that as a teenager, we were yeah. doing, not looking up with the doctor, but like, just, just yeah. kind of wanting to engage with them all the time in this oh. way, you know, where where it was yeah. like they were just, you know, really important. Oh, uh, they were so important. They were the they were the guiding light of our lives for those years. And uh, you know, I'm I'm just I'm so I'm feel so happy that I got the chance to do that. And now that I've got the chance to, to you know, I had everything documented and to write about it because. You know, you could forget all those crazy stories if you didn't write them down, you know, after so many years. Uh, well, your book is really a, it's really a, I mean, it, it really is an important document, I think. Of yes, how, I agree. How girls, with, you know, young women received the Beatles and how, and how they just affected, you know, so many areas of, of life. So I think it's. You know, it's important. It's an important part of the cultural history of the 1960s. It really, uh, Candy, oh, I, I wanted to ask you uh, to comment about this um, that Patty has mentioned, um, and I, I brought this up in in a, in a lecture that we both attended the other evening. And the last time that um, uh, we spoke with Patty, and and I, I kind of tied it back to your book that uh, the activity if you will, of, of, of beetling, uh, is mm-hmm. not, is not often sort of contained in the moment that it has, it has many sort of half lives that, that will continue for such a long time that there's something about that, that activity, which may start as just something, you know, physical or to pass the time, but then turns into a mental activity and, and in some ways intellectual labor. And I, I was always struck by Patty saying that what she learned from running the fan club, organizing things with her friends, taught her more than her time at Temple or in graduate school. Uh, and so yeah. I, I was just well, curious if you want to, if you can sort of, you know, add a little bit more to that. Well, I mean, what I actually, you reminded me of what I started once to say before about, you know, these, you know, like Patty um, was at an age where she, used her beetle obsession to basically start, you know, to become a professional journalist as a teenager, you know, and which is really amazing. And again, I mean, I'm not going to take away from her story, but there's a lot of stories like this where, Uh you know, in other words, the, the, you know, like, you know, just on a walk, I'm going to enter a contest or write a poem or write an essay or whatever. And the next thing you know, it's like, wow, I can do this. And so they were empowering in that way, you know, and, and even just being 
even just being a fan, uh, you were kind of in on this big cultural thing that was happening. But to actually, uh, you know, like just on a lark, send in a picture or, uh, you know, a poem or a few pieces, you know, and, and then to develop it into a career is amazing. And, and Patty talks about this at the end of her book where she, you know, goes into more detail on this. But I think that, um, you know, their influence um, on people, you know, that is just very profound that, and, you know, career choices, uh, you know, tra interest in travel, interest in England, interest in music, of course. I mean, just so many things. And, um, and, you know, to go one step further than that, too, you know, in the early 70s and mid-70s, we had the, you know, women's liberation movement. And I often wondered, you know, we were, we young girls were empowered in the 60s with the Beatles and how much of that went into helping us, you know, with the movement of women's liberation as we went into college. I'm, I think it was definitely a factor. I mean, just, I mean, in several ways, First, you know, mm -hmm. just in the way that you just described, where it's like that you realize that you had a skill and a passion and you had the mm -hmm. enthusiasm to pursue it, but also just the idea that things were different suddenly, the rules were different, the, you yeah. know, that, that mm -hmm. things were more, you know, the permissiveness in general, but, but part of that was also to, you know, explore different things that you might not have known about or, or, or you know, they, right. they, right. It was, there was something very empowering. I mean, again, it's like one of the mm -hmm. reasons we love them. But as far as the, you know, I mean, much has been said about, you know, the, the whole idea of them, you know, the, the connection between Beatlemania and second wave uh, feminism, which, yeah. you know, is an interesting thing to explore. I mean, I don't think we can get into all that right now, but I think that there certainly is a connection mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, uh, women and girls kind of, um, you know, they, was, they felt empowered by by mm -hmm. just the, the changes in the culture, but also the Beatles in particular. So, Dr. Leonard, in your research, you you found um, a, a bunch of people that whose careers were dictated by their love for the Beatles, Beatles as Patty did as, and myself. I became a DJ because I wanted to meet the Beatles. And so oh, you right. found you found a lot of people in your research that found their career path because of the Beatles. Well, a lot of it was music, but also graphic art, right? Uh, writing um, could be anything. Fashion. Yeah, I mean fashion. I mean it. It really, it really, what it, I think a lot of what it came down to is like be who you are. In other words, mm -hmm. that that you know to right. to pursue things that you want and to. Uh, you know, I mean, and of course, they model this in their own story, which is, you know, if you have a talent or a pursuit, don't give up, you know, be persistent and, and all that. But, but there was this sense of that, you know, that they opened the world up for us in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. Uh -huh. They really did. And, and, uh -huh. and Dr. Leonard, did you, f listening to what Patty did as a teenager and everything she got out of her love for the Beatles, i.e. Victor Spinetti, the gifts. In your research, have you found anyone that comes close to what Patty did in her teenage years uh, in her love for the Beatles? I, I, I have not. I, I mean, I think that Victor, the Victor Spinetti piece is really, it's so yeah. clever and adorable and wonderful, you know, that yeah. here he was in New York doing this 
show and she, you know, went up there and like became his friend. I mean, it's just wonderful. It's great. Well, no, I never heard a story like that. <laughs> he was just a very, he loved, he loved Beatle fans. Beatle fans became his fans. So, you know, when I was surprised, I wrote to him at, in Philly at, when he was staying at the Bellevue Stratford, where he was opening in Philly prior to Broadway. And he wrote back to me right away. I mean, it, a beautiful letter. And he says, come to the stage door. And I see a lot of the fans, they come to the stage door. And that's, there were a bunch of fans waiting for him every day after rehearsal. And he would come out and tell us stories. It was just amazing. And, you know, our little group in our little Catholic school uniforms after school would go up there and, and to the theater. And it was just, you know, we knew we wanted to have a fan club for him. He was just very, very nice and, and personable. And he, he said to us, um, I, I, I know what it is to yearn for someone that you're never going to meet because he had crushes on stars when he was a kid and a teenager. Mm-hmm. So he, he, he felt like he, and he owed it to us. And, uh, I just, you know, I, I was very fortunate to have, to have him as a, as a friend, you know, for until 2012 when, when he passed. And, uh, he was dynamic. He was just a dynamic person. Amazing. Now I, I know you mentioned that by the time you, you got to college, um, you hadn't put away all childish things because, you know, you still had posters on your wall and you were listening to the music and obviously growing up Mm -hmm. and experimenting as they were. And I guess Mm -hmm. a lot of what gets uh, Mm -hmm. lost about uh, Spinetti's uh, career in film with the Beatles is he does appear in Magical Mystery Tour. Mm -hmm. And uh, he must have really loved them to actually agree to be in there. And also making a brief (laughs) appearance is... uh, Making a brief appearance is, is another uh, young woman whose life was transformed by the Beatles, and that would be Frida Kelly, uh, whose right. story is also yeah. fascinating in terms of, uh, well, I mean, oh. basically, yes, she, she worked her way through this, and she had the, the sort of, you know, angel who, who put the magic wand on her being Brian Epstein, because she was one of the front row girls at the Cavern. Would you like to help, oh. you know, manage the, the, the fan club? And then it sort of exploded. So yeah, Victor in um, in uh, a magical mystery tour is a different uh, type of Victor. Now, were you still in contact with him by that point in sixty seven, sixty eight? Yes, yes, actually, I was. And in seventy one, uh, when I graduated college, I went over to Europe for a graduation present trip. It was in December, and uh, I went to visit him in London. And he invited. He's so sweet. He invited me. A New Year's Eve party that he was having at his townhouse in London. Wow! And we had lunch wow. together, and and we had lunch <laughs> together too. And and then through the years, um, we were back and forth with postcards. And and when he would appear on a play, he would send me the little you know playbill. And and then he would call me. And when I started working on the book, which was when I was living in Finland, um, he pushed me. He actually pushed me. He actually gave me the name of his literary agent in London. And he says, contact her. And uh, I did. And, of course, she, she wouldn't pick up on my book. But, but <laughs> he was just, you know, he was just such a, a, a giving person and very positive, um, you know, force in my life. And I'm really Chachi, we, we hadn't gotten so the New Year's Eve party story before. I never heard the party oh, yes. story before. I, is, oh, yes. 
Yes, it was. A, it was. A, he had a townhouse somewhere near the the British Museum, if I recall, at that point. And uh, he had invited some of his theater friends, and uh, I'm guess there were some really famous people there that I didn't recognize. I'm sure, uh, but uh, <laughs> it was a very nice party, and uh, he's just oh yeah, come along, you know. And as I said, I was only wow. for like. Three the, the, days and we were, amazing. Yeah. Uh, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. So, Candy, what I think is really interesting about Patty is uh, I didn't realize that there were UK albums that were different from the American albums until, gee, into the mid-70s maybe. But, Patty, when, yeah. when did you first realize that there were different albums in the UK, and when did you get your first one? Okay, well, it was pretty early. I don't remember exactly the year, but I... As all of us girls, we had British pen pals, and I had German pen pal too, who was a Beatles fan. And my British pen pal sent me a lot of clippings from different magazines and things from there. And she sent me this little—I remember this little folder that had, you know, here, here are the British albums, and you can order them internationally. So I started ordering, you know, some of the British albums because. Well, they did have different songs in them, but the uh, the covers were different, and they were so right. beautiful and shiny. They were shiny. <laughs> and shiny. Yeah. And, that was, and yeah. that, that was a big draw for me at, you know, 15, 16 or whatever. So I, I started very early ordering my, you know, some of the, and they were very reasonable. Crazy. Even well, they well, were in, yeah. Candy, did yeah. you, I mean, did you find this at all? I mean, what is this, like, everybody had foreign pen pals. What was the hell was going on in Philadelphia? This is I crazy. I, I, I had a, I mean, and again, I mean, keep in mind, I was a, I was a younger fan than Patty, but I also had a British pen pal, and there I also had 16 magazines. Oh, get yeah. my British pen pal, and in fact, when I went to England uh, in 72 or whatever, I did, Ultimately, you know, I did get to meet her and stuff. But yeah, I mean, a lot of Beatles fans had British pen pals, but that's not how I knew about the records. I think, you know, my brother was a, was a, you know was a you know hung out a lot at the record store by this point. You know, at some point, yeah, started getting into that, and then we just knew, you know, so oh, British imports, so you could order them or buy them. Yeah, I tell you, it, it's uh, Patty. I, I'm sorry, Candy. I mean, it's like a religion. Did you find a lot of your subjects were just, it was like an, a religious experience when it came to the Beatles? Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, uh, it, it, it really <laughs> it took precedence over everything else. You know, it was, it was really a religion. And the other thing I wanted to mention, too, is that, you know, um, I think that, I, I see the stereotype, and I, I'm, I'm sure Candy does too, of, of all these screaming girls in the black and yeah. white, you know, uh, newsreels. And that kind of irritates me because we were so multidimensional as Beatlemaniacs. We did, we founded fan clubs, we wrote columns, we, we did, we schemed and to meet these guys. We did so many different things. And Today, if you you know you look at something like you know eight days a week or something, they got all these pictures of girls being carried out you know from the fields and 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 the, the ballparks and people scream girls screaming and, and that was yeah it was a little part of it but it, it really wasn't the whole idea we were it was a religion in a way but we were. <laughs> So yeah, which which brings me to an entry of yours, Patty, on November twenty sixth, nineteen sixty seven. 
you say that the Beatles helped you grow up and get over your shyness. And there you are now. Oh, you're a writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I say something about childish things? Yes. You were saying before about how it's not so childish thing. I think yeah. that, um, you know, while it's true that we enjoyed these things when we were children and, and all that, or, you know, young adults, whatever, I, I think that um, today when these first-generation fans are in their 60s and 70s, you know, oh. now we're older, different <laughs> stage of life, right? I right. think it's time. I think it's time to take out these things to bring back these childish things, oh, and really, I mean, just think about it. How many people of our generation now would be whose lives would be enhanced if they rediscovered their beetle joy? That's right. Mm-hmm. You're, they are one thousand percent right. They, so and, I think that yeah. we should, you know, so so like. I mean, yes, it was childish, but like it was, it was pure joy. It was fun. It was, it was, and I think that there's always room in life for that, you know. Sure. I mean, and, and when you, I mean, when I think of it, I, ha- I have, I have my extra bedroom. I call my beetle boudoir. I have all my little beetle dolls out there, and I have posters and pictures on the wall, just like I did when I was sixteen, and I love it. And you know, it's like, why not? You know, if not now, when? And so, no. Patty, you have two grown twin daughters. Do they know? Yes. Do they know where the autographs are in the bank, and uh, are they going to be in oh. good hands? <laughs> uh, oh, uh, oh yeah. I, I have already read them the riot act about what what's here, you know, and what what's good, and and also they 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 have a reverence for it. Let's put it that way. They have a reverence. And you guys so, have seen. Would you ever consider put, loaning these pieces to a museum or an exhibit or something? Um, actually, not not the autographs, but when when I was at the um, I was at the Ridge uh, Beatles at the Ridge in mm-hmm. uh, September. And the theme was memorabilia, and uh, we were asked to bring pieces of our memorabilia. So we, we were we were going to have locked cases, that, uh, glass cases that we could show them in. And I actually brought uh, several pieces of my my stuff, but I only brought the uh, you know facsimile of the autograph. Well, good for you. Well, I mean, it, when, yeah. when you when you talk about your heirs, talking about the reverence that they have, the proper due reverence for these items, these totems. These yeah. relics, right? Uh, you know, as as mm-hmm. as uh, Candy has, or soon to be in print, talking about the Beatles as a secular religion, and these these objects oh. that have this totemic power. Certainly, you know, your kids have seen a Beatle episode or two of Antiques Roadshow, and they know that there's also a monetary <laughs> value to these things, right? Yeah. I mean, so yeah. there, there's that part of the reverence uh, uh, for it that. Um, you know that that does the the economics of Beatles nostalgia, the oh. economics of beetling and kept and found objects, especially those that have signatures, certainly have uh, says something not only of that era, but of the continuing uh, era. I have a a friend in the okay. economics department at our university, and and he had done studies of the economic geography of yard sales, you know, and he has written papers on it of that, that form of the economy of the, of an underground economy, I suppose. And, um, uh, he'll, he'll hunt for beetle objects for me. Uh, I'd never asked him to, but whether they're valuable or not, he'll come in with five old albums and some old photo books and then I'll give them away to students. But, uh, certainly those items that you have are, 
are certainly a, a sign of um, uh, of the religious nature of it, you know, and the, just those those objects that yeah. are very very important. Yeah. Well, I think the the um, scrapbooks and uh, journals and diaries we were talking about earlier that you know I just are you know as I said before they're in attics and basements all over the country. Like mm-hmm. those have no, they may not have a monetary value, but they each of them are really you know it's like finding. Letters from you know women out on the prairie in the uh-huh. 1700s or whatever. In other words, they they tell an important story about what life was like and what girls were doing and how girls' development and socialization and everything was affected by these four guys from Liverpool. Well, they're they're, <laughs> they're they are they are absolutely important texts, and like any important text, they're only as good as they can be taught and shared with others who might not have been a girl on the prairie, right? So therefore the folks who need to access history through the micro history Mm -hmm. format of, uh, of the scrapbooks. And and so they provide great storytelling opportunity um, for Mm -hmm. those who, who don't know it, not in, not to feel as though they're going to be indoctrinated into this, into this world, but it's a way of understanding someone's life, not just through you have old photographs of them, but what did they, what did they do on a daily basis? What were their occupations? You know, what did they talk to their friends at recess about? And this is what it all was. So hopefully you have all of those opportunities to sort of not just bring them around to like-minded people, but people who have no access to it, but can be brought into that world, you know? That's That's just a teacher coming out in me. (laughs) One sad point though, that I must make when we're talking about, scrapbooks. I have about three big scrapbooks and they're now, you know, hitting 55 years old and mm-hmm. they're starting to crumble. I mean, the, the right. articles and it's so sad because when I, even when I did my, my research and I used a lot of the articles, you know, this tape would just disappear and parts of the article would just disappear. And it's like, Oh my goodness, how can I can't preserve these things. I mean, they're, they're old scrapbooks, you know, with the, Scrap paper, which was very cheap in those days, they made scrapbooks out of very cheap paper, and then the the, the newspaper articles are starting to disintegrate. So I'm, I'm a little it occurs, upset. <laughs> I mean, it occurs to me that there should be somewhere, maybe Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, somewhere, some exhibit that has yeah. open pages of yeah. the preserved, you know, and yeah. however one preserves these things in a museum. Um, because they really are an important part of the yeah. story. And, yeah. you know, the, a lot of, you know, the, the screaming girls get kind of, you know, dismissed as silly and not important. And, and you know, and some of these stories are, are perhaps not seen as important. But they're, you know, they were the texture of real life for millions uh-huh. and millions of American women. Right. <laughs> yes. That's true. That is absolutely true. That's well, true. listen, I I hope this is the beginning of a long friendship. I think the two people in this world that should know each other would be Candy Leonard and and Patty Gallo Stenman. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, I'm sure that well, yes. I'm sure that we will meet one day. Yes. I don't I, I don't know how, when, or where, but yeah. I'm sure we will. We will. We should keep in touch too. You know, we really should. Yes. And, yeah. Uh, you know, we 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 are both on on. I guess Facebook now together and Messenger and things. So that's that's a good start. It sure is, and you know I've and known- we should also encourage other women to. 
I hope that my book has encouraged other women to write about the Beatles, not only in first person, as, you know, but also just to oh, you yeah. know, offer that. Because that's really been missing in 55 years of commentary. Uh-huh. It's really all male perspective. And I think that my book hopefully has encouraged women to write about yeah. the Beatles. And I, and, I, and I hope that yours does as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, and, and and it's something that's been uh, that I found, you know, and before your book, I found was missing was that the fan perspective, you mm-hmm. know, and knowing that my generation, our generation, it's sad to say, but we'll be passing, and, right. and this thing, this has to be preserved, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that was part of my yeah. motivation for writing yeah. Beatles was that oh, this yes. experience has to be documented. Yes, me too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. me too. Because I think that. You know, it's it's kind of a, I don't know what would you say. Um, it, it it kind of is a pat in the back for all the other millions of of, of fans of Beatlemaniacs that that are out there that haven't hadn't written anything. You know, we're just telling them and encouraging them that yes, this happened. It was great. You know, and and we're writing about it. So and, yeah, you yeah, know, it's it's really it's important. And I think that men, you know, also should write about. You know, a lot of the fan perspective stuff tends to be written yeah. more by women for sure. a variety of reasons that we, we don't have time to go into now. But I think that men should also write about their fan experience. Well, we don't see right. very much of that. And, and, and I, I do believe that there should be more female voices in the Beatle world, uh, in the media. And uh, that's why I love both of you. Candy Leonard, I've known for a bunch of years. Patty, I've gotten to know over the last <laughs> year or so. Two of my favorite books, <laughs> Professor Gallant. It's called Beatleness, How the Beatles and Their Fans Remade the World, Dr. Candy Leonard. And then uh, Diary of a Beatle Maniac, A Fab Insider's Look at the Beatles Era. Two books that I find fascinating and two books. Chats, do you want to? Uh, par- pardon the interruption, Chats. Oh, yeah, do you want to let our? You want, here, you want <laughs> Yeah, I'm here. Do you <laughs> want to let our guest? Uh, uh, actually, I'll 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 do it. Uh, Candy, if fans or others want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Well, they can write to me at candy at beetlemess.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also on Facebook. They can find me there as Candy Leonard or or at Beetlemess. There's a Facebook page. Um, there's a Beetlemess.com website, which has um, some excerpts, reviews, some video of me talking about it. Um, and you can order it where most people buy books these days. Yes. And, and How about you, Patty? Patty? Okay. Diary of a Beetlemaniac it can be obtained on Amazon uh, through Sinrin Press. That's C-Y-N-R-E-N, my publisher. Or via my website, um, if you want an, a copy signed, uh, and my website is diaryofabeetlemaniac.com, all crunched together, <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also available in some local bookstores, uh, and um, I do, uh, you can also find me on, uh, I, I guess, on LinkedIn and, and um, Instagram and and oh also yes, on LinkedIn. Yeah. Yes, yes. Always forget about LinkedIn. Well, LinkedIn, I, I, and also on Facebook. Yeah. And I will add that I love both of these books, and I think Patty brought it up a little a little while ago. The fact is, it's about the fans. It's stories that have never been told before. We always hear about inside the storm, but these two books uh, put you in the storm, and it gives you a whole different perspective on uh, on the Beatles legend and through the eyes of the fans. And I think. Both of these books would make fantastic Christmas gifts. Uh, 
at any, uh, for yourself uh, any time of the year if you have a Beatle fan in your life. Uh, both books are great companion books, and I really enjoy them, and that's why we invited both Dr. Leonard and Patty Gallo Stenman on our podcast today. Get back to the Beatles. Now, Professor Gallant, yes. before you wrap up and say goodbye, yep. is there anything you want to add? Uh, we certainly want to thank Patty and Candy for joining us. Absolutely. Today. In fact, uh, one could also find Dr. Leonard's book conveniently uh, for sale at the Suffolk University bookstore. Now, who and made so, that happen? Not, 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 not only do I love that book, I love it so much I teach it. So, uh, uh, certainly, um, and I'm sure uh, I may be excerpting some of uh, uh, Patty's book for uh, uh, for purposes for my students to do some investigation as well. So these are these are real fantastic texts because you you have to look at this phenomenon from all angles, and this angle from uh, um, from that consumer level on up, that end user on up, is just a it's a way most of us access the Beatles. So it's 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 a great. It's a great way for them to understand that part of the phenomenon and also to understand how people put these together and now, the whole intellectual process. Do your students find this kind of behavior that was in uh, Candy's book and certainly what Patty did as a teenager, do they find that fascinating, your students today? I think it, it to them it would look like it might come from another planet because it's not accessed <laughs> off of their phones. And uh, I, 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 do, I, I do think that they, they are amazed it even seems shocking to them. I know that Patty talked about the footage of girls being hauled away off the field at Shea Stadium, but they find that to be fascinating, even if it's not necessarily representative of everything. I think they, they appreciate that power and, and, and how these guys, uh, this phenomenon could have inspired people to do many things that both were associated with Beatles music and also uh, uh, parallel to it. So always, always great stuff to to have the students access it that way. Well, isn't that great? Well, thank you very much. We want to thank our two guests, Dr. Candy Leonard, author of Beatleness, Patty Gallo Stenman, author, um, author of Diary of a Beatle Maniac. You've been listening to Get Back to the Beatles on the Boston Podcast Network, pod617.com. We're brought to you in part by Subaru of New England and Direct Tire and Auto Service. And we also have a sponsor. It's the Ringo Starr Show at the Box Center. Uh, June 10th, 2020. Are you going to bring your students to that show, uh, Professor? Uh, with enough peace and love and budget from the university, I hope to bring a few. You believe that, you two guys <laughs> on the phone? He brings his students to see Beatle-related concerts, Ringo, and you brought students to see Paul, right? I did at Fenway one year, yeah. We never did that when we were in school, so look at that. There you go. Well, I guess it goes with the <laughs> with the Suffolk University cost of going there. It's not cheap. So, <laughs> so uh, both Dr. Leonard and Patty uh, Gallo-Stenman, thank you for joining us on our podcast today. We sincerely appreciate it. We wish you the best holidays, and we hope to see a lot of you in 2020. So, you guys, we love you. Thank you thank both you. for thank coming you. on. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank, thank you, you, David. Thanks, bud. Okay, you guys. Thank we'll you. see you later. Everybody have a Bye great now. holiday. We'll see you next time on Get Back to the Beatles on the Boston Podcast Network. Take care okay. of yourself. Thank see you, you next time. Bye-bye. Get back, JoJo. Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette at pod617.com. The Boston Podcast Network.